As we begin this series on the book of Revelation, as is my custom, I'm suggesting some helps for you if you're interested. The classic and revolutionary reformed commentary on the book is by William Hendrickson. The title is More Than Conquerors, but it is an actual commentary verse by verse through the book of Revelation. I say classic reformed because... Hendrickson is a classic Calvinist, and I say revolutionary because it reestablished a new departure on viewing the book of Revelation in a particular fashion, and that influence and interpretation has impacted all of us who have followed Hendrickson as we look at this book. I acknowledge my own debt to him at the beginning, and I will be attempting to explain as we go through how he looks at the book in a very different way. It's not a large commentary, but it is uh, it is substantially detailed. But there is a more popular work by Michael Wilcock called The Message of Revelation. Uh, very well written, easy to read, a uh, little shorter and briefer than Hendrickson, but uh, following in the same type of approach to the book. So there are some suggestions if you're interested in uh, having something at hand in, in your own study or in your own home library. Uh, those, either one of those would be helpful as we proceed. Now I'm not going to conduct an argument about the authorship of the book of Revelation. His name is John. His name is in the book. It's now upon the book. But I want you to realize that virtually no liberal scholars of the 21st century believe that the Apostle John wrote the book. The John who claims to be the author here is an anonymous figure, according to liberal scholarship. And so they reconstruct the book on on basis of their theories about its origin and where it came from. Uh, That is rubbish, and so I dismiss it. But I do want to bring the testimony of the church fathers to bear upon that question. Whether the Apostle Paul, Apostle John, I haven't converted from Colossians quite yet. Whether the Apostle John, according to the first, the second century BC, ABC, AD church fathers, is the John of the Gospel of John. He is the author of the book of Revelation. Now, I cite in my comments Justin Martyr, who is approximately 150 A.D. I cite Irenaeus of Lyon, who, is a, who flourishes around 180 A.D., perhaps dies about 200 A.D. And I cite the Muratorian fragment that we have cited before in our studies on the books of the New Testament, particularly my lectures on the book of Jude, lecture number two, where in the handout you actually have a copy of that Muratorian fragment that you can see on your computer screen. And in that fragment, dated about 170 or 170 A.D., the Apocalypse of John is the language of the fragment. That's second century A.D. church fathers, within a hundred years of the completion of the writing of this book, attributing it to the Apostle John 
disciple of our Lord Jesus, author of the fourth gospel. Then when we move into the third century, that is the 200 A.D. and following church fathers, we encounter the significance of Hippolytus of Rome and origin of Alexandria. Hippolytus of Rome, in fact, wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Not very substantial, the only fragments or suggestions of it have survived. Origin, of course, a, a voluminous church Bible commentator, though some of his works have not survived. But in any event, they too endorse the authorship of the Apostle John for the book of Revelation. The testimony of that tradition is not infallible, but it is important to confirm what the text itself claims, namely that the only other John known in the New Testament as a writer and author is John, the apostle of our Lord Jesus. So I accept it as a given that he is the author of this work which we begin to study. Now we are dealing with a book which contains an apocalyptic eschatology. In fact, the title of the book is the Apocalypse of John the Apostle in some of your Bibles. And the first word in Greek, in the Greek text of this of this book, verse 1 of chapter 1, is apocalypsis. It comes from the Greek word, which means revelation. So we are dealing with an apocalyptic work which has an apocalyptic eschatology. An eschatological apocalypse which moves through panels of brilliant tapestries, panels strung together in a narrative of semi-eschatological reality and finality, an apocalyptic narrative which interfaces and intertwines panel after panel of present and future divine revelation. The tapestry is a trans-historical narrative of the history of redemption from the now time of the people of God to the not yet time of the people of God. The narrative imagery is the story of the people of God in the now of their present and temporal existence and the not yet of their future and eternal existence. It is a narrative unfolded in symbols, pictures, portraits, tableaus of supernatural beings and events in images of mystery, war, conflict, battle, peace, tranquility, the eternal in the temporal as the temporal repeats in redemptive historical fashion the ongoing clash, the ongoing clash of the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of hell in the ongoing history of the people of God, the bride of Christ, the church invisible. Now, why is this apocalyptic narrative entrusted to the Apostle John? What is it about John's narrative? What that is? What is it about his own personal biography? What is it about John's narrative, his biography, which commends him to, re- to the revealing mind of God the Father, to the work of God the Son, by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit? 
It is an obvious question. Why John, not Paul? Why John, not Mark? Why John, not the mysterious author of the epistle to the Hebrews? Why John? Is it because he was the beloved disciple and thus also conformed to the triumph of the kingdom of the Son of God, his Savior, in parallel love and suffering? Is it because he was entrusted with the care of Christ's mother for the balance of her earthly life and thus privileged to receive the hidden mysteries of the family of the paternal father, the filial son, and the spirational spirit? Is it because his emphasis on the semi-eschatological character of the history of redemption in the person and work of God the Son, his language is, the hour is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. So striking and bold is he that he is entrusted with a panoramic sweep of that now, not yet drama in the 22 chapters of God's revelation of that ongoing recursive paradigm. Or is it because he was the last apostle? outliving all the other apostles and disciples. He is the eschatological apostle, if you will. Outliving all others and that the last things, the eschatological things, the present and future eschatological things were revealed in his present and future history. That is to say, His semi-eschatological history is folded into the apocalyptic semi-eschatological history as the future glory of the not yet draws down upon his life in the temporal now. As we grapple with these questions about the choice of John to receive this apocalypse, we confess that the divine good pleasure is using one perfectly suited, perfectly suited to receive and record a narrative that he is experiencing and will shortly experience in actual glorification. John's life is conformed to the anticipation of and future realization of what he records. He is close to death. Now, And not yet glorification. Not yet. So this this reminds us that in background, we should explore the narrative of the life of the beloved Apostle John as its now and not yet aspect is recorded in the pages of the New Testament. Now, You may be bewildered as to why I have taken this step to start, but you will notice that I'm talking about a narrative personal biography that that is impacted by the semi-eschatological drama of the now and the not yet, and that is exactly what is being unfolded in the pages of the book of Revelation. And if you miss it, it will be a mystery to you. This life of the beloved apostle is nearing its end. 
His now is about to become is not yet. And he is given a revelation of an unfolding and transcending tableau and panorama of that now and not yet drama throughout the redemptive history of the church. That will solve for most of you the difficult challenges of how you follow the changing drama of this book as it moves towards the heavenly city. Now, that's not, of course, an infallible interpretation. But it is my suggestion as to how one benefits from Hendrickson's basic principle of interpretation and then develops it more deeply, perhaps, than even he does. All right, so looking at the biography of John the Apostle, remembering that this biography prepares him, folds him down into the drama which is being unfolded in tableau after tableau and tapestry after tapestry of the book of Revelation. John first appears in the narrative biography of Jesus, to which he will unite and join himself as a joint heir, a joint heir of Christ and his story, John first appears after Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of God, the now coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus preaching that along the shores of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. Christ fixes his eyes on two fishermen, sons of Zebedee, and a prosperous fishing family enterprise. Mark chapter 1 verse 20 tells us they employed hired servants. Hired servants means a prosperous fisherman enterprise. Jesus fixes his eyes on James and John and commands them to follow him in a new enterprise. A new enterprise of a new age. A new age of fishing for the souls and hearts of men as fellow disciples of the kingdom of heaven, which he has just begun to proclaim and to demonstrate. Even now, as James and John follow Jesus, who is drawing men and women by the netfuls into the kingdom of God, Jesus is drawing them by the netfuls into the kingdom of heaven They too, that is, James and John, participate in the unfolding of the gathering of hearts and souls who are yet to possess the kingdom of the Lord Jesus forever and ever. They are being drawn into the now and not yet of the paradigm of the kingdom of heaven present in Jesus and his proclamation. Following Jesus now and forever, fishing for men now and forever, this is the story of the people of God in the gospel. It is the story of the people of God in the epistles. It is the story of the people of God in the apocalypse. It is the story of the people of God in every era of redemptive history since Jesus came and will come. That now, not yet, element is present now, even to us. Three days later, John is with Jesus and the other disciples in Cana of Galilee. They are guests at a wedding. 
a celebration containing the anticipation of the wedding feast, as well as the anticipation of the mystery of the union of bride and groom. When the joy of the wedding feast is threatened, Jesus performs a miraculous work which signifies the present abundance of the blessings he brings. The present overabundance of the blessings he brings. Sweet is that union, sweeter than wine, and a joy to experience in the Lord. And yet that miracle points beyond itself to a heavenly and eternal wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that is John's language in the book of Revelation. Note, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where all the recipients of the union between Christ and his bride now celebrate in joy and communion forevermore. A present and future marriage celebration recapitulating itself in the story of the church until Jesus comes. You are now invited guests. You are even now seated guests. You are participants in the drama. It is no different when you read about that drama in the book of Revelation than it is when you read of it, the drama at the wedding feast of Cana and Galilee. John is present with his brother James and also Peter when Jesus enters a room in the home of Jairus where the corpse of his 12-year-old daughter is laid out on a bier. Do dead persons rise? Well, yes, at the last day, way off in the future. But Jesus says, Talitha kum, and a dead girl rises now, in the present time, in the midst of time, in the time of Christ, long before he returns in the future to raise all the dead once and for all. John is eyewitness to a resurrection from the dead now in Christ, in that home of Jairus, even as he knows that a general resurrection day is appointed when Christ returns, not yet in glory in the future. Now is the day of resurrection. For those dead by nature, Christ makes you alive today, even as he made that little girl alive today, even as his narrative biography declares a final resurrection of the body in the future. John sees the first resurrection from death now, even as he anticipates a second resurrection from death not yet. Yes, a first and second resurrection. That's the language of the book of Revelation. But having witnessed the resurrection of a dead body and life or new life graciously given to the dead, John, with Peter and James once more, is privileged to witness a glorified body, a glorified physical body on the Mount of Transfiguration. There on that mountaintop, John sees Jesus Transfigured with the light of heaven's glory, 
and that glory in his present body. John sees the body of Jesus present, transformed with glory light of his body future. In other words, he's given a preview of the final resurrection and glorification of dead bodies in the body of Jesus transfigured before his face. Body that Jesus was now in is displayed as it will not yet appear when fully glorified. John is drawn into the drama of the physical body of Jesus in the now arena transfigured into the not yet arena and glorification of that body. John beholds a glimpse of the post-resurrection glorified body of Jesus of Nazareth. He sees in time and space history a body transfigured before him, which is the very image and substance of the body that will rise from the dead at the second coming of that Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given a preview. And the record of that narrative is a preview to you that Jesus has already experienced it. He's already gone through it. His now and not yet is fulfilled and completed in him and your attachment to him gives you that completion. In the now, John on that mountain sees the not yet. A now time physical body transfigured with glory to its not yet true appearance. John beholding the history of the human physical body. It will be resurrected and those in Christ will be glorified as he was seen glorified on that mountain of transfiguration. You shall be like him. You shall see him as he is. And as he is, so you will become by resurrection, transformation and glorification. In Christ, life for the dead, now and not yet, in this age and in the age to come, a glorious prospect now and forevermore, you do not need to fear the loss of that which is part of you. All of you will be glorified, including your physical body transfigured, raised up and changed into a body fit for glory fit for heaven, fit for the realm of the spirit, a spiritual body, but not a ghost, a body subject perfectly and completely to the Holy Spirit. All right, having witnessed the resurrection of a dead body and the glory transfiguration of a living body, John is now sent into the region of the Samaritans to prepare the way for Jesus. The Samaritans refuse to receive Jesus. And John, with his brother James, asks Jesus to call down fire from heaven to consume them. This is how John and James became known as sons of thunder or Boanerges. But Jesus rebuked them, for he had come to save even Samaritans, not to destroy them. Is this 
perhaps why John's gospel records Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. He's the only gospel writer to tell that story. An occasion where Jesus not only offers the grace of living water to a Samaritan woman, but also alerts his disciples that the fields are ripe for harvest. The field of the nations, Jewish, Samaritan, Gentile, the fields are ripe for harvest. It is not accidental, therefore, that Peter and John are sent to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 to baptize the Samaritan believers with the Holy Spirit. John's biographical history interfaces with the present history of the Samaritans so as to highlight the present and future power of the gospel grace of Christ as it unfolds among Samaritans and non-Samaritans and all nations in the ongoing harvest of salvation in every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven, and that's his language in Revelation. The gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven must first be preached to the nations. Those are Jesus' words to Peter, Andrew, James, and John as he sat with, sat with them on the Mount of Olives describing the events of the end in their now and not yet occurrence and manifestation. The Apostle John is an ear witness to the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse about the now and not yet end time, Mark 13, Matthew 25. The Lord Jesus showed them that in the course of the gospel proclamation to all nations, they would be persecuted and even killed. Even now, as in every age of the church's history, that revelation is being fulfilled. The Lord Jesus further showed the disciples on the Mount of Olives that those hated for the sake of his name would be saved, even though they be dead, yet should they live. Even now, as in every age of the church's history, that revelation is being fulfilled. As he remarks to John and the other disciples in that Mount of Olives discourse, God will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, both in the present hour and the hour of the glory appearance of the Son of Man. The harvest of the gospel to the nations in the now time and the not yet time is a recursive drama of ongoing persecution and salvation, preserving the Lord's elect now in the hour of their death and in the hour of his glorious appearing at the end of the age. If we find the apocalypse of John operating between these two poles, the pole of persecution and salvation for God's elect 
It is but a further expansion of the Olivet Discourse of his Lord and our Lord. You do not interpret Revelation any different than you interpret what Jesus is describing in Mark 13 and Matthew 25. The Olivet Discourse is the prelude to Christ's own personal persecution, passion, and deliverance by resurrection. Peter and John are dispatched by our Lord to prepare the Passover for him and his disciples in the upper room. And it is in that room of remembrance the remembrance of a Passover lamb, that the lamb of God reveals a symbol of his blood. The blood of a new covenant. Blood by which even now the bond slaves of sin and Satan are saved and delivered, yea, emancipated from the kingdom of darkness in every age of the church's history, saved and delivered up to the hour when he comes at last by the blood of that lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, who redeems every elect believer in the present time of their existence by the blood efficacious enough to save them to the uttermost, even to the future glorification and final resurrection transformation. There is no difference in the power or efficacy of that blood then in that upper roof or now today. The blood of Christ, our sacrifice, has been offered up for us to affect our present and future redemption everlastingly. And that blood is the blood of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that is the language of John in the apocalyptic book of Revelation. And in that upper room... At that last supper of the eschatological Passover Lamb of God, we behold, we behold the beloved disciple, the beloved disciple John leaning on the breast of Jesus. What a portrait of a now and yes, not yet comfort. John, laying upon the loving heart of his Lord. John, in the present now time of his life, doing what is repeated in the now time life of every sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years, leaning on Jesus, every weary, sinful head leaning on Jesus for life, and rest, and peace, and everlasting salvation. No other lamb, no other life, no other Savior leaning on Jesus as John did and the disciples of Christ today do. And for all eternity, they receive the joy and satisfaction and consummation 
of that rest-leaning salvation. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved first. Even before that disciple loved him, Jesus, the Son of God, loved John. That's the order. That's the proper order. That's where it begins. It begins with God now doing something that you are unable to do. God doing something that you have no ability to do. God entering into you first by the power of his Holy Spirit to make you alive from your death, to raise you up from your bondage, to set you free from your chains and depravity, to give unto you a whole new dimension, new disposition, new orientation, new inclination, not indifference, not hatred, not contempt and despite for Jesus, the Son of God, but a delight, a love, a passion, a hunger, belief, confidence, trust, rest. All of these coming to you because he first loved you. If you love him sincerely, with your heart of faith, it is because he gave you that gift. It is because he first loved you enough to let you love him back. Otherwise, you would be dead in your indifference or stayed and presumptuous in your contempt or your simply carelessness. The loving disciple, John, of the loving Lord Jesus, follows the Lamb of God to the place of slaughter, to a mount of crucifixion, and there he beholds that Lamb, his Lamb for sinners slain, on a gibbet, on a cross, on an instrument of cruel death. And as he looks on, trying to make sense out of this brutal murder, as he looks on, the eyes of his beloved Savior look on him. Son, behold your mother. The beloved mother of Jesus commended to the care of the beloved disciple John. The fellowship of the disciples folds in the widowed mother of their Lord in a testimony to the ongoing care of Christian widows in the bonds of the Christian community. Until they are widows no more, in that eschatological heaven of the wedding supper of the Lamb, they are to be nurtured, they are to be protected, they are to be cared for by the family of Christ, mirroring his compassion as he displayed it from the cross. 
the family of Christ, to protect, nurture, encourage, and care for the widows of the Christian community. John enters in to that responsibility. And so she took, she was taken into his house from that day forth. All right, well, we come to a time where we can take a short break, so let's take a break and we'll return to finish off this biography of John as it relates particularly to the now not yet eschatology of the whole New Testament, including the book of Revelation. On the day of resurrection, this beloved disciple was jolted from his sorrow and incredulity by Mary Magdalene's report that the stone is rolled away from the opening of Jesus' tomb and the tomb is empty. John joins Peter in a foot race to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The disciple whom Jesus loved wins the race and looks into the empty tomb but does not go in. He is incredulous. He does not yet believe that resurrection will touch his Lord and Savior. He does not yet believe. He has seen resurrection. Jairus' daughter. He has seen resurrection. Lazarus, four days stinking dead. He has seen post-resurrection transfiguration on the mount. And yet he is incredulous. Is incredulous as he stands gazing into the vacant tomb where Jesus' body was laid. Impetuous Peter, arriving at last, impetuous Peter rushes right into the empty garden tomb, and as he looks upon the linen wrappings which remain, denoting the position of the body which does not remain, John enters the tomb, sees that the body is absent, sees that the body of Jesus is risen, and now John begins to understand that the eschatological things have happened in the present to the body of Jesus, his Lord. In the now time, present time of Jesus' body, he has experienced the not yet time, the future time of the resurrection of the body. And John now realizes this resurrection of the Son of God changes all time. Since Jesus rose, nothing is the same anymore. Since Jesus came, nothing's the same. He is the turning point of all history. From now on, all time for believers in Christ will be framed between resurrection now and resurrection not yet. All Christian life will move between those two dramatic poles. Resurrection now and resurrection not yet. Raised up to life in Christ now will be raised up in Christ not yet when he returns in glory. 
power of the resurrection is present and future in every era of the church's history till he comes. It's present and future in every elect believer between now and the return of our Lord Jesus. There is no new paradigm. You're not going to read anything new in the book of Revelation that goes beyond this pattern. You're not. Don't look for it. It's not there. Now, in conclusion, John will go into the post-resurrection history of the apostle by receiving the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. A witness to the ongoing anointing by regeneration and indwelling unto sanctification by the Holy Ghost, which is the possession of all true Christians down through the centuries. Possession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being given, poured out, entering in, indwelling. There is no difference. It is the ongoing story of Christians regenerated and sanctified in the Holy Ghost. John will join Peter in healing the lame man at the temple in Acts 3, a miraculous work which earned them threats, the command not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. This threat and command arises from and is present in the unbelieving world down to our present day, as in Peter and John's refusal, as is Peter and John's refusal to stop preaching in the name of Christ, it's present down to the present day. If we are told not to preach in the name of Christ like them, we will decline the offer. Even unto death, if need be. And you and I know that that is happening even as I speak here at this time today. Herein begins the persecution of the servants of Christ, which illustrates the tangible clash between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in the present history of the church of Christ. Do you think what the apostles experienced after the resurrection in Jerusalem, the persecution they experienced, do you think that that's any different than the persecution that Christians are experiencing today in various places of our world? It is not. They're entering into the same narrative. It is the ongoing narrative of the people of God in every age of the church's history since Jesus was ascended into heaven. That persecution which breaks out against the disciples will execute John's brother James, Acts chapter 12, verse 1, when Herod Agrippa beheaded him to please those who opposed the church. To please those who oppose the church. The political faction joining with a hostile, unbelieving religious faction to slay the disciples and servants of the Lord. The church under the cross. Now and not yet. The souls of the martyr saints slain for the word of God. Those souls gathered around the throne of glory also now and not yet. 
Christian martyrs will not cease until Jesus comes. They will not. The Apostle John's exposure to and experience of the now and the not yet. Remember, he quotes Jesus' words, the hour is coming and now is. That's a now and not yet paradigm. The hour is coming and now is. Now and not yet. His experience of that folds his biography into the redemptive historical narrative, which is dramatized in the biography of his Lord, the Son of God incarnate. Who then better to receive the revelation of the ages in tableaus of imagery, recalling and recounting the semi-eschatological now not yet story of the elect of God? Who better than John the Apostle? Who better to tell that story, the elect destined for an everlasting story in Jerusalem, the golden, in that heaven where present time will be transformed by never-ending timelessness. Who better than the disciple that leaned on Jesus' breast? Try to keep the poles of the paradigm in mind as you read your way through the book of Revelation, as we continue to look at the text itself in our future meetings, Try to keep the poles always in mind. Now, not yet tableau. Now, not yet tapestry. Now, not yet symbols. Now, not yet imagery. Try to keep that in mind. It will be very helpful to you as you try to sort out what become what look to be complicated details of the apocalyptic book of Revelation. But we'll try to help you along as we go through the book, week by week, Lord willing. Any questions or comments that you have? Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for your comment. I trust it's helpful to you. We're trying to bring it down into the biographical paradigm, the biographical narrative of the one who received the revelation and his reflection upon it in light of his experience with Christ and his biographical narrative. Let us close in prayer. We are awed by this book, which seems so mysterious, Lord. And yet we are thankful for those who help us understand it and make it quite easy and simple to comprehend. No, there are challenges, we realize, and we understand that we need the presence of your spirit to help illuminate our dark and ignorant minds, and so we place ourselves before you in that capacity, praying that your spirit will help us. But we thank you for your servant John, for how you first loved him and brought him to love you, and how you animated his pen with all of the drama and mystery and even the biography of your own story reflected in the story of your bride, the church. Help us, O Lord, to lean upon you as he did. Strengthen our weak faith, O Lord, and encourage us, even with the wonders of this book of Revelation, to look 
steadfastly unto Jesus and to that place where he sits in glory at your right hand in his transfigured, resurrected body, drawing upon the honor and worship and devotion of those who are gathered in around his throne in rejoicing and celebration. For that prospect, O oh Lord, we bless and thank you. Through the name of the Passover Lamb of God, the last Lamb for sinners slain, Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen.